everyone, welcome back to Airwave, a student-led anesthesia podcast for medical students. My name's Maya and I'm a third year medical student at McMaster University. Joining me today is one of our new Airwave writers, Winnie. Thanks Maya for the warm welcome. My name is Winnie and I'm a second year medical student at McMaster University. As always, this podcast reflects our own views and not necessarily those of our institution. I'd also like to emphasize that the Airwave podcast is not for medical advice, just good old fashioned medical education. Today, we'll be discussing the anesthetic considerations for patients with asthma. We'll organize our discussion by first reviewing some respiratory physiology, then discussing the pathophysiological changes in asthma, and finally talking about the preoperative, intraoperative, and postoperative management. Let's get started. Uh-oh, respiratory physiology is a bit daunting. Agreed. There are a lot of things to cover for respiratory physiology. Let's start with the basics. First, we'll go over respiratory anatomy. Good idea. We can divide our approach into the upper and lower airways. The upper airway consists of the nose, mouth, nasal and oral cavities, pharynx and larynx up until the vocal cords. The lower airway consists of the trachea, the right, the left main stem bronchi, bronchioles and alveoli. The alveolus sacs are the final portion of the airway and they lie in close proximity to the capillaries. Together with the capillaries, they form the air blood barrier and represent the primary site for gas exchange, like oxygen and carbon dioxide. Great overview. Now that we know the structures that are involved in respiration, let's go over what really goes on when we breathe. Let's situate ourselves in the lungs. The lungs are covered by two membranes, the visceral pleura covering the lungs and the parietal pleura covering the inside of the chest wall. In between the visceral and parietal pleura is the pleural space. This space is filled with a fluid that forms a seal, which holds the lungs against the thoracic wall. This seal ensures that when the thoracic cavity expands or contracts, the lungs move with it. When we take a breath in, the diaphragm, which sits at the bottom of our lungs, contracts. This flattens out and expands the superior and inferior dimension of the thoracic cavity. At the same time, accessory muscles, such as the intercostal muscles, will elevate the ribs and sternum, which extend the anterior and posterior dimension of the cavity. Exactly. So overall, inspiration increases the volume in the thoracic cavity. Since we know that there's a seal between the thoracic cavity and the lungs, when the thoracic cavity expands, so will the lungs. Due to Boyle's law, when we hold the body temperature constant, pressure and volume are inversely related. So when the lung volume increases, the pressure will decrease. The external environment pressure is now greater than the pressure within the lungs. This allows air to move down this pressure gradient and into the lungs. This is what happens when we breathe spontaneously, negative pressure ventilation. In contrast to inspiration, expiration is usually a passive process. This is really important to appreciate. When exhalation is active, you may notice the use of accessory muscles, pursed lip breathing, and tripod positioning. Active exhalation reflects underlying pathology. In passive exhalation, the diaphragm and intercostal muscles return to their resting position and the thoracic cavity volume decreases. The lung tissue, due to its elasticity, has the ability to return from its previously expanded state back into the original size. With this decrease in volume, the pressure inside the lungs is now greater than the external environment, meaning that air will move out of the lungs down the pressure gradient Remember, we mentioned earlier that when we breathe spontaneously, we use negative pressure to move air in and out of our lungs. But you can also achieve ventilation with positive pressure. 
This is the underlying mechanism of modern mechanical ventilators. With positive pressure ventilation, oxygen and air is actually pushed into the lungs by a mechanical ventilation device that generates a positive pressure gradient. Ventilation can be administered invasively by an endotracheal tube or non-invasively, such as with a mask. In critically ill patients, this is helpful because it decreases their work of breathing while ensuring adequate oxygenation. On that note, let's review the classification of lung diseases. There are so many diseases involving the lungs. What helps me remember lung diseases is by broadly classifying them as restrictive or obstructive. Me too. First, we have restrictive lung diseases. These are defined as an impaired ability for the lungs to expand. So, in a simplified way, think of a balloon that is struggling to be blown up. On the other hand, obstructive lung diseases are defined by an increased resistance to airflow, which makes it hard to exhale the air out of the lungs. Think of it like breathing through a straw. The idea of airflow resistance is key. To really appreciate it, let's quickly go over Prousseau's law. You may have come across this law in your physics classes. Ah, uh, nice trip down memory lane, my <laughs> undergrad physics course. I certainly remember learning this law. His equation shows that airflow resistance is inversely proportional to the radius of the tube to the power of four. The key takeaway is this, small adjustments in airway radius will substantially alter the airflow resistance. To really drive this point home, let's compare what happens when the airway radius decreases in size from two centimeters to one centimeter. Hmm, since the radius has to be raised to the power of four, by changing it from two to one centimeters, we end up increasing the resistance by a factor of 16. Awesome, and that'll be all the physics for today. Oh, thank God. Let's get back to lung diseases. Speaking of lung diseases, obstructive lung diseases can be further differentiated from restrictive lung diseases on pulmonary function testing, which consists of a series of breathing tests. One of these tests is spirometry, a simple bedside test that can get an idea of lung function. But before we go over these details, let's quickly review the key spirometry lung volumes and capacities. Good idea. Let's take a normal breath in and out. The volume of air that moves in and out of your lungs at rest is your tidal volume. The volume of air that remains in your lungs following normal expiration is your functional residual capacity. The volume of air that can still be expired after normal expiration is your expiratory reserve volume. And the volume of air that can be inspired after normal inspiration, that's your inspiratory reserve volume. Now let's pretend to take a deep breath in and out. At the end of your maximal breath in, the volume of air in your lungs is called the total lung capacity. The volume of air that can be expired after maximal inspiration, so from your maximal inspiration to your maximal expiration, is the vital capacity. The volume of air that remains in the lungs after maximal expiration is your residual volume. And finally, there is the FEV1. The FEV1 is the volume of air that can be expired in one second of maximum forced expiration. These volumes and capacities can be hard to understand. It helps me to refer to a diagram. In addition to this podcast, Airwave also creates our own infographics, which include a helpful diagram of these spirometry volumes and capacities. We strongly recommend checking out those infographics because it helps to consolidate information with visual guides. 
As we mentioned earlier, spirometry values can also help us differentiate between restrictive and obstructive lung disease. So let's review some of these spirometry characteristics of these two lung diseases. With obstructive lung diseases, because there's an impaired ability to exhale the inspired air, there will be a decreased FEV1 and a decreased or normal forced vital capacity, aka FVC. These changes taken together means that the FEV1 over FVC ratio will be decreased, typically below 0.7. On the other hand, with restrictive lung diseases, since the issue is not necessarily with the ability to expire air, the FEV1 to FVC ratio remains normal. Another spirometry change is with respect to TLC. With restrictive lung diseases, since there is an impaired ability of the lungs to expand, like that balloon that can't be inflated properly, there will be a reduced TLC. In contrast, obstructive lung diseases may increase TLC. This is because of air trapping, which may occur secondary to impaired expiration. Air trapping in the lungs means that there will be a greater residual volume in the lungs following expiration, and with subsequent breaths in, the total volume of the lungs will increase over time. Whew, that was a lot of physiology review. Now let's talk about asthma, which is an obstructive lung disease. Asthma is an inflammatory disease characterized by reversible, variable outflow obstruction and bronchial hyperresponsiveness to a trigger. Whoa, that's a long sentence. Let's break that down. First, the process begins with inhalation of an irritant or allergen. Second, due to bronchial hypersensitivity, the irritant or allergen leads to airway inflammation, mucus hypersecretion, and excessive smooth muscle contraction. The outcome of this is a reduced airway diameter leading to increased airway resistance and airway obstruction. Factors that can trigger asthma include allergens, respiratory infections, air pollutants like tobacco smoke, exercise, stress, and drugs such as beta blockers and NSAIDs. Asthmatic symptoms may include breathlessness, chest tightness, wheezing, and coughing. Asthma attacks can resolve spontaneously or with treatment. Speaking of treatment, it includes maintenance medications and reliever medications. Maintenance medications are used on a regular basis and are used to maintain disease control. The most common ones you will encounter are inhaled corticosteroids with or without a long-acting beta-2 agonist, or LABA, such as Symbacort or Flovent. Other maintenance medications include leukotriene receptors antagonists and long-acting muscarinic antagonists, or LAMAs. Exactly. Reliever medications are administered as needed for symptoms and include the rapid onset, short-acting beta-2 agonists, also known as SABAs, such as Ventolin. Other medications used for severe exacerbations include short-acting muscarinic antagonists, SAMAs, and oral corticosteroids. Great asthma review. Winnie, do you think we're ready to discuss the perioperative considerations for asthma now? Absolutely. But before we get started, let's take a step back and recognize some of the potential complications that may occur in asthmatic patients. Great idea! Patients with poorly controlled asthma are at a higher risk of complications such as bronchospasm, mucus plugging, atelectasis, pneumothorax, infections such as pneumonia, and respiratory failure. In its severe form, asthma can lead to pulmonary hypertension and even core pulmonale. Ultimately, the goal is to help reduce the risk of those complications and make sure that the surgical journey is as smooth as can be. 
With that being said, let's start from the beginning and discuss the preoperative evaluation in asthmatic patients. During the preoperative evaluation, it is important for the anesthesiologist to understand the patient and their asthma, consider ways to optimize their condition, and create a game plan leading up to the day of surgery. To do all of this, they need to gather information. When taking a patient's history, it's important to delineate their common triggering agents, medication type, dose, frequency, and degree of benefit, and their exercise tolerance. It's also helpful to know how often they're experiencing exacerbations and how these are managed, such as use of a rescue inhaler or if they require a trip to the hospital. Some key points that indicate severe disease include ICU admission and prior intubation and mechanical ventilation. It's also helpful to ask about any recent upper respiratory tract infections. A recent upper respiratory tract infection may increase airway hypersensitivity for some time after. But that doesn't necessarily mean that there's a clean-cut answer to determine the optimal time for surgery. Making that decision is a bit more complex, and the anesthesiologist needs to weigh numerous factors, such as asthma severity, degree of control, implications of delayed surgery, and more. Great point! Overall, taking a comprehensive history may provide insight to the likelihood of perioperative complications, and if there is an increased risk, what the options are available. It is important to understand, though, that it's not necessarily the presence of a singular factor that increases complication risk, but rather the patient's whole picture. Results from retrospective analyses suggest that complications like bronchospasm are more likely in patients who need asthma medications, noted frequent symptoms, and or had hospital visits for asthma treatments within the last year. To clarify, Bronchospasm is a reversible, involuntary, smooth muscle contraction of the bronchi, leading to increased narrowing of the airways. That's a great point to highlight. In addition to taking a good history, a physical exam for the asthmatic patient may also be helpful. The preoperative physical exam may focus on respiratory rate, wheezing, signs of lung infection, diminished breath sounds, increased work of breathing, and clinical features of right-sided heart failure, such as pitting edema and distended JVP. Also, look for home O2 requirements in severe asthma. To guide the history and physical, laboratory studies such as pulmonary function tests, arterial blood gas analysis, chest imaging, and ECGs may be useful, but not always necessary. These testing modalities may not be required in patients who have mild and well-controlled asthma. However, they may be helpful in patients with moderate to severe asthma that are undergoing high-risk procedures. So far, we've discussed the components of history, the physical exam, and testing for the asthmatic patient during a preoperative evaluation. Other components of the preoperative stage is medication management. For asthmatic patients, they're recommended to continue taking their usual medications up to and including the day of surgery. One exception to this is theophylline, which should be discontinued the evening prior. That concludes our overview of the preoperative evaluation. Let's move on to the anesthetic considerations for the asthmatic patient on the day of surgery. Let's start with the time before the patient is brought into the operating room. You can consider pre-medication with a bronchodilator, such as Ventolin, 20 to 30 minutes before airway manipulation, and this may minimize the risk of pulmonary complications like bronchospasm. If your patient is anxious and prone to bronchospasm with anxiety, consider premedication with a drug like midazolam, which is a benzodiazepine with anxiolytic properties. Preoperative anxiety may lead to increased respiratory rate, 
which may lead to anxiety-induced bronchospasm and lung hyperinflation due to breath stacking. Good thought! Another consideration is what anesthetic technique is best suited for the patient and their operation. General anesthesia may be associated with an increased risk of bronchospasm due to stimulation of the airway during intubation and extubation. It's important to highlight that endotracheal intubation is a very potent stimulus for bronchospasm. When possible, it may be helpful to avoid intubation. Other options include a supraglottic airway or mask ventilation. When possible, regional anesthesia may be a better anesthetic technique since airway manipulation can be minimized or avoided altogether. Okay, great. Let's say that the anesthetic technique has been chosen for the surgery and we're ready to bring the patient into the operating room. Let's discuss the intraoperative anesthetic considerations for asthma. We'll start at induction. During induction, it is important that a sufficient depth of anesthetic is achieved. This will help blunt airway reflexes and prevent bronchospasm. But before we get too ahead of ourselves, let's take a step back and review the common induction agents and their considerations in an asthmatic patient. Good call. Generally speaking, induction agents can be administered through an IV or they can be inhaled. Some common primary IV induction agents include propofol and ketamine. Propofol has limited use as a bronchodilator, whereas ketamine is better suited to improve bronchodilation during induction. Inhalation agents like sevoflurane are also potent bronchodilators at a good enough depth. In addition, there are other IV medications that contribute to induction. For example, opioids such as fentanyl will help supplement sedation and suppress reflexes to laryngoscopy. However, some opioids like morphine release some amount of histamine and may contribute to airway edema and smooth muscle contraction. Another IV agent used on induction is lidocaine. There have been studies which show administration of 1.5 to 2 milligrams per kilogram of lidocaine 90 seconds before instrumentation can suppress the cough reflex. If intubation is planned, IV neuromuscular blockers may be required during induction. Some of these agents are common causes of intraoperative allergic reactions, such as rocuronium. As well, some of these agents can release appreciable amounts of histamine, like succinylcholine, which may be avoided in an asthmatic patient. Great overview! So that covers the induction phase of the intraoperative course. The next step in the journey is anesthetic maintenance. Wow, we are making some good progress here. Similar to induction agents, maintenance can also be in the form of inhalation agents, such as sevoflurane or IV, such as TIVA, or total intravenous anesthetic. During the intraoperative course, we also need to be cautious of using beta blockers when we want to help control the patient's heart rate or blood pressure. Hmm, why do we need to be cautious using beta blockers in a patient with asthma? Well, remember that for asthmatic patients, beta-2 agonists can be used to minimize the risk of bronchospasms, but if you give non-selective beta blockers to control their heart rate, you may contribute to bronchospasms because of their beta-2 blocking effects. So in short, non-selective beta blockers interfere with the efficacy of beta-2 agonists. Makes sense. So opting for selective beta-1 blockers, such as esmolol and metoprolol, may be more safe in asthmatic patients. You got it. Thanks. So now that we've covered induction and maintenance of anesthesia, we should take some time to explore ventilation considerations for an asthmatic patient. Absolutely. These patients have airflow obstruction, which means that they have impaired expiration. A key ventilation consideration is to reduce air trapping in their lungs and ensuring adequate expiration. 
An approach to reducing air trapping can be through controlled hypoventilation. This includes maneuvers like reducing the respiratory rate and tidal volume. In addition, you may prolong the patient's expiratory time by adjusting the inspiratory and expiratory ratios. For example, from a ratio of one to two of inspiration to expiration time to a ratio of one to three. Before we conclude our discussion of intraoperative considerations, let's go over an approach to intraoperative bronchospasm. We stated earlier that bronchospasm is a reversible, involuntary smooth muscle contraction in the bronchi, leading to further narrowing of the airways and obstruction of airflow. So keeping this in mind, how can bronchospasm be identified? Some signs and symptoms of bronchospasm include a shark fin-like waveform on capnography, declining O2 saturation, high peak airway pressures, and wheezing on chest auscultation. But it is important to understand that while these may be signs and symptoms of bronchospasm, they may also be caused by non-bronchospastic etiologies, such as a kinked or obstructed endotracheal tube or even anaphylaxis. Great point. It's important to rule these other causes out. As these other causes are ruled out and bronchospasm is ruled in, it's helpful to set the fraction of inspired oxygen to 100% and deepen the anesthetic. If the patient's bronchospasm persists, administration of a rapidly acting beta-2 agonist, like Ventolin, may help. If the bronchospasm is severe and refractory to the initial management, further intervention is required. Exactly. These modalities include anticholinergics like atrovent, epinephrine if anaphylaxis is suspected or severe asthma refractory to standard therapy, magnesium sulfate, ketamine, and steroids. Now that we have an approach to bronchospasm, let's move on to exploring some anesthetic considerations during emergence. Bronchoconstriction may occur with reversal of neuromuscular blockade with cholinesterase inhibitors, although this is rare if an appropriate dose of an anticholinergic agent is used. It may also occur as the patient emerges from anesthesia and emerges from anesthesia with the endotracheal tubes still in place. One way to try and avoid this is to perform a deep extubation. Although it can allow the patient to awaken without the irritation of the ETT, they will be emerging with an unprotected airway. Exactly. Deep extubation doesn't come without its own risks. Another option is to prophylactically administer a beta agonist through the ETT before emergence. IV lidocaine may also be administered during emergence as well. Once the patient is ready to be rolled into PACU, we can progress to post-operative management. Post-operatively, it is important to manage pain, continue asthma medications, ensure early mobilization, and continue to monitor for bronchospasm and respiratory problems. Wow, we covered quite a lot of information on this episode. Let's do a quick summary and highlight some key concepts. We started off with reviewing respiratory physiology and covered the basic structures of the airway, mechanics of breathing, Puiseaux's law, and lung volumes and capacities. Then we discussed obstructive versus restrictive lung disease and how they differ on spirometry. Next, we discussed asthma and their anesthetic considerations. Preoperatively, it's important to determine the severity of the condition, optimize disease control, educate on continual use of medications, and assess the need for further medication supplementation or investigations. Next, we covered the intraoperative and postoperative anesthetic considerations. Here are some key takeaway concepts. One, ensure an adequate depth of anesthesia. Two, further blunt airway responses with the use of adjuvant agents such as lidocaine and opioids like fentanyl. 
Three, avoid histamine-releasing medications if possible, such as succinylcholine and morphine. We also covered anesthetic consideration as they pertain to airway management. It's important to avoid airway instrumentation such as intubation, if possible, and consider regional anesthesia instead of general anesthesia. With regards to ventilation strategies, it is crucial to ensure adequate expiration and to prevent air trapping. Some maneuvers include adjusting the inspiratory to expiratory ratio using low tidal volumes and a decreased respiratory rate. In the case of bronchospasm, it's important to have an approach. Some important identifying features include shark fin wave on capnogram, decreased O2 saturation, wheezing, and increased peak airway pressures. Management includes adjusting FiO2 as needed, deepening the anesthetic, and medications such as ventolin, atrovent, epinephrine, and magnesium sulfate. Finally, postoperatively, it's important to resume asthma medications, ensure sufficient pain control, and observe for bronchospasm and respiratory problems. And that concludes this episode on asthma. We hope that you'll be able to apply what you've learned today to your clinical rotations. We would like to thank our content editors, Dr. Peru Panchal and Dr. Anthony Valente, and a big thanks to Dr. Cordovani and Dr. Whippy for their continued support. Also, make sure to check out our website, tweet at us on our Twitter page, at Airwave Podcast, and follow us on Instagram, at Airwave Podcast, for any questions or suggestions. And until next time, keep working hard, stay healthy, stay safe, take some nice deep breaths, and count back from 10.